I mentioned last Sunday my interest in the book of Jonah to my shame is that I relate to Jonah a fair bit. Uh, The idea that someone would be called by God and yet would have these inclinations or temptations to resist God is something uh, that I've always struggled with. And so God's dealings with Jonah is an encouragement and challenge for me. Now in our study last week, we began the story with Jonah, and we noted that Jonah was not only resisting God's call, not only was Jonah not interested in doing what God wanted him to do, but Jonah was resisting God himself. The text says that Jonah fled from the Lord, or was attempting to flee from the Lord. So Jonah made some choices, and his choices were an attempt or a strategy to get away from God, and to get away from God's calling on his life. Now Jonah made some choices, but God also made some choices. And God's choices significantly hindered Jonah reaching the destination of his choice. We read in chapter 1 how the Lord sent a great wind that threatened to break up the ship that Jonah was traveling on. Jonah, at his own request, is thrown overboard and should have drowned in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. But God intervened to save Jonah in a miraculous and in a most unusual way. We read, The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now this is a familiar story, so maybe it just rolls over us as being a a story we've heard many times, we're taught in Sunday school, Uh, but let our logical minds grapple with the fact that the Lord appointed a great fish, probably a whale, probably a sperm whale, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah lived inside of that fish for three days and three nights. Now I want to take some time because there might be some here today who are thinking, I just don't see how that's possible. It makes for a really great story and maybe they'll turn it into a really good movie someday, but how could a fish, how could even a whale possibly swallow Jonah? Can an intelligent person actually believe a story like this? Well, for some people, a discussion like this is hardly necessary. Those who are familiar with God's resume of miracles in the Bible have little difficulty believing that an event like this is possible. For others, believing that Jonah survived three days in the belly of a whale is not so easy. So if you are among those who have lingering doubts about the veracity of this story, I want to spend a brief amount of time this morning offering the biblical evidence for Jonah truly existing in the belly of the whale. Well, the common suggestion that probably many of you heard, the common suggestion from the skeptic is to say, well, the story of Jonah is given to us as a parable. 
It's given to us as an allegory. It's not given to us as a historical rendering of events. But from a literary standpoint, if we confine ourselves to basic rules of interpreting literature, this suggestion doesn't fit at all. Because from the very beginning of this book, we have indicators that this is a historical account. By virtue of the use of specific genealogical and geographical references. Verse 1, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. So the introduction of the book of Jonah begins in a manner that's consistent with the other historical books written by the prophets. Scroll through your Old Testament. This is what you'll find. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. The word of the Lord that came to Micah and so on. So the beginning of Jonah follows this pattern that the other historical books begin with. Secondly, did you know there's an additional reference to Jonah in the historical record of 2 Kings chapter, chapter 14, verse 25, where we read, The king restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. You see, the references to Jonah are just too specific for his character to be allegorical. Jonah has a father named Amittai. His occupation was as an Israelite prophet. He was from Gath-hefer and was commanded to go preach in Nineveh. These are far too specific references for a parable. Look at the parables of Jesus. They, they usually begin, oh, a certain man owned a farm. and They're, they're general. But here we're clearly given specific references. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that Jesus himself treats the, the, the reference to Jonah as though it were historical. Jesus says to the Pharisees, No sign shall be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So very simply, Jesus treated Jonah as a historical account. And so should we. Jesus regarded the account of Jonah to be historical. And so should we. But the skeptic persists. Bryn, how is it possible? Think scientifically with me, Bryn. How is it possible for a person to survive three days in the stomach of a whale? Well, my answer is that he probably can't. He probably can't survive in the belly of a whale any more than a person could be in the grave three days and rise again from the dead. 
You see, if what happened to Jonah were scientifically plausible, if what happened to Jonah was explainable, we would be tempted to minimize God's influence on all of this. It's because of the miraculous nature of this account that points to a God who is powerfully working out His will in Jonah's life. Jonah's survival in the belly of a great fish can be no more easily explained than the accounts of Jesus healing blind people, Jesus healing lepers and paralytics, Jesus feeding multitudes with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, Jesus walking on water, the list goes on and on. Read the Gospels. It's all impossible unless you're God. We embrace the implausibility of what happened to Jonah. Because of what we believe about God. We regard the account of Jonah as historical. Because our faith is in a God for whom nothing is too difficult. Nothing is impossible. So I've said far more than I wanted to about the veracity of this story. And and I I don't know if you're a skeptic and, and if I've done anything to turn the balance towards believing this. But we can say that conversation for another day. We need to spend some time talking about what's going on inside Jonah. What is Jonah experiencing in terms of his relationship with God? You'll remember this this entire predicament, this entire situation began because Jonah chose to disobey God and to resist him and to flee from his presence. Now what's Jonah's situation? Jonah is quite literally trapped, nowhere to go. And what does Jonah do? He prays. I love how verse 1 begins in chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed. What did he pray? He said, in my distress, he's actually reviewing his earlier prayers. He says, past tense, in my distress, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, from the belly of Sheol, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. Now I want you to bear in mind that what Jonah is referring to, he's referring to his distress that he experienced in the past. And this is important because he's not talking about being in the belly of the whale. Because that's his present reality. This whole dialogue where he's saying, Lord, I called out to you. He's in the whale talking about a prayer he did in the past. The distress that Jonah is referencing is the time he spent treading water in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know how many of you have taken swimming lessons. And and I'm I'm an old man now. I feel like an old man. Uh, But I remember being like six years of age and to pass a certain level in swimming lessons, you had to tread water for five minutes. Now, I remember very little of my instruction as a young swimmer, but I remember what it was like treading water for five minutes. I remember counting in my head, wishing that it would go by faster. And and maybe it was just my tiny little frame at the time. And I don't know about you, but I found it difficult to tread water in a swimming pool 
for five minutes. Well, what's Jonah doing? Jonah's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's not necessarily calm because, uh, well, it is calm because it was a raging storm and when they threw him out, it was calm. Nevertheless, I bet he was treading water for a very long time. More than five minutes. Maybe more than 25 minutes. Maybe more than 55 minutes. We don't know. What we do know is that Jonah was so terrified by his predicament that he was calling out to the Lord. He describes how the currents swirled about him and that the waves swept over him. He even talks about the seaweed getting wrapped around his head. And then Jonah's prayer is the acknowledgement that the Lord heard his cry. So here's what we have. Jonah's prayer suggests that his being swallowed by a whale was the Lord's response to his cry for help. Can you imagine the scene here? Jonah's in the middle of the sea doing as any believing person would do. We'd be crying to our God for help and for rescue. Pleading with the Lord with every bit of logic and zeal that we can muster. Lord, save me. And if, instead of sending a rescue vessel, the Lord sent a fish. And the fish swallowed Jonah. That was how God answered his prayer. There's so many lessons we can learn from this account. Uh, I've got at least four lessons that I'm taking home and, and would love to impart to you. The first lesson, I think, is an obvious one. We should not wait for a crisis before we turn to God. We should not wait for bad things to happen to us before we turn to God. Now you might say, well, Jonah was the author of his own misery. Jonah had no interest in the Lord. He was trying to flee from the Lord. Jonah was not interested in communicating with the Lord until he got into trouble. This is sometimes true of us, isn't it? We let our prayer life dwindle. We stop reading the Bible. Maybe we stop attending church. Or maybe we just pull back and we're not as involved in the, the life of the local church anymore. And then the Lord uses some alarming occurrence to waken us from our spiritual slumber. Needless to say, we should not wait until something bad happens before we return to God. Now... If, if you're one of those people who are thinking, well, that's me, actually. I return to God when the bad thing happened to me. I've got good news with the second lesson I've gleaned. God sometimes answers our pleas and our prayers in spite of our guilt. In spite of our negligence. In spite of the fact we've stopped praying. In spite of the fact we don't read our Bible anymore. In spite of the fact we're no longer serving the local church in any meaningful way. In spite of our pulling back from God. He sometimes answers our prayers. 
Jonah had sinned against God. He totally disregarded his call to go to Nineveh. He fled to Joppa where he purchased a ticket and boarded a ship headed to Tarshish. Subsequently, Jonah is thrown overboard and only then does he call out to the Lord for help. And the amazing thing I see in all that is that the Lord answers him. If there is ever anyone to say, oh, you're just getting what, what, what you had coming to you. You shouldn't have run from me. No, if there's ever going to be a finger-pointing God, this would be the one. Jonah, this is what you get. You reap what you sow. But God doesn't give Jonah what he deserves. He doesn't let Jonah experience natural consequences. He extends mercy. He answers his prayer in spite of the fact that Jonah deserved none of it. From this we conclude that God mercifully sometimes will answer our prayers in spite of our guilt before Him. That's the second lesson. The third lesson, again, this one's really obvious. The third lesson we glean from this passage is that God sometimes uses extraordinary means to answer our prayers. He sometimes uses extraordinary means to answer our prayers. And this is important because a lot of the time God uses ordinary means. God uses everyday occurrences and everyday situations, sometimes so subtly that we miss that God had done this and set this up for us. But sometimes because we're prone to miss what God is doing, God sometimes uses extraordinary means to answer prayer. Now, if you were to ask me to do something for you, suppose you had a task that you thought I could complete for you. And suppose I agree to that task and I make a pledge to you. And I say to you, by every means possible, I'll get the job done for you. Now, as sincere and as serious as I might be in that pledge, by every means possible, to do that thing for you, the reality is, I am a person of limited means. My wisdom is limited. My time is limited. My resources are limited. My strength is limited. And the list goes on. It's a long one. But when you cry out to God for help, you're crying out to one who has no limitations. There is no means that is off limits for God. Literally every resource in this universe is available to God, even if it means suspending normal, natural, physical laws and making a giant whale serve His purposes. So when you ask God for help, be prepared for the possibility that God may use extraordinary means to answer your prayer. There's at least one more thing I think we can learn from the account of Jonah. This one will challenge many of us. We need to learn to be thankful in the midst of very difficult circumstances. We need to learn how to be thankful in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And the profundity of what we read in, in verse 9 of chapter 2 can only be appreciated when we, when we look at the context. So look at verse 9. With a song of thanksgiving, I sacrifice to you. Well, where is he? He is in the stomach of a fish. Now, 
Those of you who know I have a weak stomach, I don't like to think about things that are of this kind of grotesque nature, but for your edification, we're going to try to think this through each for ourselves this morning. Take some time to imagine what it would be like physically to be inside the stomach of a giant whale. If you're afraid of the dark, well there you're off to a bad start. Because I don't suspect that there would have been any light at all. Dark as dark can be in the belly of the whale. I also imagine it would be quite hot. Now we live in the Bahamas, we're not averse to heat. But I suspect in very cramped quarters and no ocean breeze making its way through, I imagine a hundred degrees plus inside the belly of the whale. I also imagine, and this is the tough part for me, I imagine it, would, it wouldn't smell very nice in there. I don't, I don't even want to think too hard about what it would have been like, and the doctors here can do a better job than I at thinking this through. Because you know what the gastric acid and the gastric juices would be like to be covered and all the stuff that would be in a whale's stomach all the stuff in a whale's stomach would be on you. And whatever else the whale ate that day, it would be next to you. And I don't want to think about that. And, and yet, honestly, if, if you can, take a minute and think of how fragrant Jonah would have smelled. I mean, I handle fish for dinner and I wash my hands and... It's like I didn't wash my hands. The fish smell stays. If your whole body is in a fish, with fish, what are you, you're going to be very fragrant. And I want you to imagine, we know how the story ends. The, the whale vomits Jonah up on dry land. Can you imagine the very first people to encounter Jonah when he's on dry land? What happened to you? You, you're a mess and you smell disgusting. Go take a bath, Jonah. What's Jonah's perspective in all this? With a song, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah's been humbled. He is in a most uncomfortable predicament. But he's been talking to God. And talking to God has changed his perspective. Jonah's been praying. And that exercise has had a transformative effect on Jonah. From the belly of a whale, Jonah gives thanks to God. He praises God the author of his salvation. This is something we all need to imitate. Why? Because bad things have happened to us. For some of you, bad things are happening right now. And so I ask you, are you talking to God? Are you crying out to Him? Are you pleading with him? If you are, I can't say for certain that God will change your circumstances. 
But I can say for certain, God will change you. Call out to God and He will change you. It was prayer that turned a running prophet into a worshipping prophet. Adversity has a power. Adversity can render us ineffective as Christians. Or it can drive us to God. Which will it be for you? In the day of trouble, will you run? Or will you worship? I want to talk about Job for a moment. Not Jonah, Job. Job who had some awful things happen to him. You may recall when all of Job's children perished, he gave this response. We read in Job chapter 1 that when Job heard the news of the death of his children, the text says that he tore his robe and he mourned. Tore his robe and he mourned. Of course you This is terrible. You're going to mourn. You're going to grieve. You're going to be a mess. But then we read, Job fell to the ground in worship. And Job said, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I can't overemphasize the importance of prayer, the importance of crying out to God. And it's likely the case that the less you feel like praying to God, the more you need to. And Jonah eventually figured this out. He had to be thrown into the sea. He had to be swallowed by the belly of a great fish. But Jonah eventually figured this out. Jonah learned the hard way. So why do I preach this sermon to you? I'd rather you not learn the hard way. I'd rather you not go through terrible things which are aimed by a gracious God to transform you. Do not wait for a crisis to hit before you turn to God. Prayer is the most vital exercise for the Christian. And I worry that most of us treat it like it's a life jacket. It's like the thing we have nearby, and if we get into trouble, we put on prayer like a life jacket. But if things are good and the sea is calm, we leave it alone. No. Prayer is like oxygen. We can't live without it. John Bunyan once said this about prayer, and this has lingered with me. Bunyan said, Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. That's worth thinking through. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. 
As I look out here this morning and as I consider all that God is calling St. Andrew's Kirk to do, I regard that there's a lot for us to do. We've done a lot, but there's still a lot left to do. And there's also much for you to do as an individual Christian, as an individual follower of Jesus Christ. There is much for you to do. But before you do anything, before you start anything, you must pray. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, pray. Pray with thanksgiving to the Almighty God who is working all things together for your good and for His glory. Amen.